Hello and welcome to On The Money, where you can find out anything and everything to do with finance, business and the economy. On The Money is broadcast live from the studios of Radio 2 SER 107.3 here in Sydney on the Community Radio Network nationwide. I'm Roderick Chambers and coming up on the program... It's probably never been a better time to buy residential property in the last um, sort of 12 to 14 years. Auction clearance rates are showing signs of life in Sydney and Melbourne, but oversupply in apartments and the scandals in the Sydney apartment tower construction and the banking sectors have affected the markets. But could this signal opportunity? We find out also on the show. Well, we think it's really important that we upskill and reskill our current workforce because technology-driven disruption is disrupting the work. Earlier today, Australian business leaders have warned business owners they'll need to catch up with the rest of the world and the tech disruption in their industry. All of this and more coming up on On The Money. But first, the future of work is a hot topic in many boardrooms, cabinet offices and universities around the world. Some businesses are finding that they can work in distributed teams internationally. And the running remote conference in Bali looked at how businesses could best take advantage of emerging technologies. Remote teams are the future of work because uh, this is the the new technology that becomes uh, much more popular, that gains popularity in recent decades. Uh, The number of remote workers accelerates by 200% in in several regions, uh, including North America, Europe, and also Southeast Asia. Uh, And this opens... uh, bigger opportunities for companies because they can hire internationally, so they get access to much wider pool of employees. And, and is this uh, something, also, uh, do you, are you finding that it's increasing, this uh, re- remote recruitment of people? Uh, yes, it is. There are multiple studies that, that show the growth, uh, particularly in the United States, but in other countries as well. And the growth is uh, it, it's very rapid, yes. With the technology that's available, this is the real reason that uh, remote work is becoming more and more viable, isn't it? Yes. Uh, in the first place, it's the, the internet, that uh, internet connection that became, became much faster and also a lot of online tools that became available in the recent years, such as uh, different messengers, uh, online meeting rooms that brought online communication almost at the same level as face-to-face communication. Uh, So the remote work has become uh, almost as efficient or sometimes even more efficient than uh, their uh, office work. I was just wondering uh, if you could give me a bit of a a rundown on the Estonian e-residency program. Oh, sure, yeah. Yeah, e-residency was also our guest at this conference. And so what, what they offer is registering the legal entity in Estonia while not being physically present there. So uh, 
company owners from um, other regions that want to enter uh, EU market, they often face the difficulties because uh, company registered outside of EU may be um, considered as not serious or not respectable enough. Uh, and also they can have like some legal issues, some tax issues when um, uh, negotiating about the contract with European clients. So Estonia offers uh, anyone who can be uh, physically present in any country in the world, open the uh, legal entity in Estonia and do all the tax and financial uh, uh, issues through uh, Estonian um, legislation. So, so in, s- in this case, it's... Yeah, sorry. So you're sort of running a virtual office through Estonia as part of you know, yeah. having a presence in the EU? But it's not connected to Estonian citizenship, so because sometimes people confuse this. They think that if they are a, an e-resident, uh, this gives them uh, similar rights as the regular resident, but it's not. It's absolutely two different programs. So e-resident is just fully virtual presence. It's not connected to uh, Estonian citizenship in any way. And what sort of uh, work, what sort of industries are are primarily using distributed teams now? Who are the people at the vanguard of all this? Uh, well, of course, it's not a surprise that primarily we had tech companies. They were almost all our attendees, uh, SAS, uh, consulting, web and web development, e-commerce, uh, marketing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sometimes. Some companies have just one department uh, going distributed or remote. This can be support or sales uh, within a bigger company. Uh, just wondering whether the finance industry would be one industry that could perhaps be uh, picking up on this distributed model. Uh, yes, we have. We also had a couple of fintech uh, uh, fintech companies, but it's again um, it's a mouth between tech and uh, finance. So, yeah, in this case, they, they can go remote. Uh, but uh, some of them can be uh, they, they can be bothered more with the security issues. So in this case, uh, they can be more um, cautious in this. And, and what are some of the challenges that people find when they start to uh, get this rolling, where they've got uh, you know, a number of people perhaps in a team? What are some of the things that uh, they've really got to work through? Well, one of the main topics discussed at the conference was building culture within a remote team because um, it's very difficult uh, not to micromanage and uh, over-control remote employees because uh, managers can feel nervous, they don't see them, they can't fully uh, understand what they are doing at any moment. But at the same time... um, like a good manager also shouldn't just let let things go until the deadline. So there should be a balance between over-controlling people and just encouraging them to, to do the work. And there are multiple uh, strategies uh, for establishing a proper culture in the team. Um, then also there are some uh, uh, challenges of hiring internationally when you can't uh, sometimes invite a person for an interview into the office and you just have to do an online interview and uh, you have to make a decision based on uh, a smaller amount of factors uh, and and you have to make it right because when you hire someone, it's much difficult to fire them than uh, when you're still making this decision. So th- this can cost a lot to an organization. 
so people also were sharing their uh, strategies of finding the right type of people. And also not everyone can work remotely. For instance, people, uh, a person can be a good uh, office worker and he can have all the skills that are needed for the position, but he just don't have enough self-discipline, for instance, for remote work. Um, and he's not in, in, initiative enough to uh, make decisions on his own when he's in different time zones, for instance. So these are some special factors to consider when hiring remotely. So I, I suppose some of the issues are really a, a bit similar to people who, who are working from home and that sort of thing, where you know they need to be able to be comfortable with working by themselves and uh, just communicating remotely via the internet and uh, uh, tele- telephone conferencing and that sort of thing. Yeah, totally, totally. Um, you've uh, found there's a lot of people interested in getting involved in, in uh, re- remote uh, remote distributed teams. Is that uh, uh, you're getting a lot of interest from companies that are looking to get information on this? And is there a problem with communication, with language, for instance, because it's such a globalised idea? Uh, well, I think uh, English is a must in, in remote world nowadays because most of the companies, they are based, of course, uh, as I mentioned, North America, Australia, Europe, and they hire internationally. So usually the main communication language is English still. Anna Usova from runningremote.com speaking with me there from Bali. I'm Roderick Chambers and you're listening to On The Money throughout Australia on the Community Radio Network. Well, the Sydney and Melbourne property markets have been in a cooling phase in the past year, but with spring, there is always hope. I asked Malcolm Gunning, past president of the New South Wales Real Estate Institute, whether the good auction clearance race showed that the markets could be picking up. Yes, there is. It's, you know, it's two reasons. One is the banks have loosened up um, and you know, they've recalibrated um, their lending criteria, uh, which is the important thing. And secondly, the market's optimistic. Um, and you've, you've, then you overlay that with really probably a 10 to 15% drop in prices um, across the broader Sydney market. So when you stand back and look at it, if you've got a good job and a reasonable income, it's probably never been a better time to buy residential property in the last um, sort of 12 to 14 years, that type of thing. So, it and, is, and, of course, the uh, interest rates are pretty friendly at the moment too, aren't they? Just a bit. You know, um, you, you do need a, you need a pretty hefty deposit. They're still looking for, other than a first-time buyer, you really need 20% deposit. So, but anyone who's up, upsizing or downsizing, um, it starts to look pretty attractive. But what you've got to also factor in, Ross, is that you've got only loan numbers. Don't let auction numbers um, uh, really be the absolute guide because you've got loan numbers. We're probably down 30 35% of what we had last year, at this time last year. Right. And with a lot of the clearance numbers, what's not recorded is what, what is withdrawn. So what you've got, it's an indicator, but what I hear from the residential agents out there particularly is there's just loan numbers of listings, and if it's reasonably priced, it's sold pretty much straight away. So you've, it's, it's difficult to compare to what last year or the year before. 
And uh, what's happening with investors? Uh, are they uh, sitting on what they've got or are they trying to get out of some of their investments? What do you think is happening at the moment with them? Everyone's sitting on their hands. Our office does a lot of – we do our office deals a lot with the high net worth um, investors. And the single biggest problem with um, trading investment property at the moment is taxation. Is there's been good capital growth in um, commercial real estate, and the main, one of the things we say to our investors, if they're thinking about, so we say, we say, why don't you go off and see your accountant? And they say, well, why would I do that? And I said, well, go and have a look what your um, your effective um, returns going to be for the property post tax, and they come back and start to make a make a song and dance when they when they weigh up how much capital gains tax they need to pay. So. What you've got at the moment is an investment market that is weighing up um, the opportunities. Anything that's got a reasonable return sells and sells well. But again, from a very low base, there's not a lot of property coming on the market for um, investment property coming on the market for sale. And what about the, uh, the, the fallout from the Opal Tower and the Mascot Tower as well? Is, is there... Uh, a lot of people being a bit reticent now about getting into the newer blocks. I, yes, they are. That's the feedback where I'm getting. <clears throat> I'm getting it's particular areas in, say, the Olympic Park area or um, uh, particularly South Sydney. They're a little bit concerned. But in saying that, uh, yes, where you get your best bargains at the moment. So if you're a first home buyer, and they're a reputable builder. You're buying um, very, very well because there's all sorts of incentives for uh, for the buyers out there. You know, there's paying stamp duty and there's um, you know, assisting with deposits, a whole range of things, which is typical of this time, this type of market. So, it is a very attractive market for investors. The banks will lend to investors. There's no problem with them. They've loosened up with that to a certain extent, but they've got some black spots where they don't want to lend. So, And also the valuers, when assessing those properties, uh, you know, particularly the high-rise um, residential in some of the areas where there's been some trouble, the valuers will then take a, a conservative approach which, with their opinions of um current market value right. for the mortgage purposes. So, so are we going to see a few in, more of these, uh, what they're talking about as ghost towers? Oh, look, yes, there is in some cases. But the ghost towers, a lot of those have been, uh, is because the foreign investors um, have probably purchased and haven't leased. See, we've also got a 35 to 4% vacancy factor in, in Sydney at the moment, which is, I that's as high as it's been for... 14 to 15 years. I mean, we've got uh, two or three years ago was, you know, 2%, 2.5%, 1.7% in 2016. Now we're 3.4, 3.5%, which is more than double. So you've got the rents going down, vacant properties. So it's a a very different dynamic. But in saying that, if if there's investors out there where they're 20 or 25% deposit, they're going to buy below replacement costs, which is always a good deal. And, and has the Sydney market affected uh, the rural areas, the regional areas as well? Uh, well, I can talk with some authority because we actually own a rural property in the Upper Hunter. And no, it hasn't. So the markets around in places such as Newcastle, Wollongong, um, Bathurst, um, those sorts of places where they've got reasonable commutes, um, 
and the Central Coast particularly. No, they're all those markets have all held up a lot better than Sydney. And I noticed some figures too about uh, Brisbane and Melbourne. They're, they're saying that uh, under 500,000, they're uh, a much hotter market now than Sydney. But is that mainly due to the actual price of Sydney real estate? Yes, Ross. If you, could, if you said to someone who's working in the suburbs of Sydney, um, if you had the opportunity for a job, a good job in Brisbane, and you can go and buy a property of about 40% less, it's, uh, you don't, they don't take a lot of convincing to move. Well, given that we're looking at some uh, headwinds, as uh, they keep telling us for the economy, what, what do you think is the outlook for the next, uh, you know, say, six months or so? Uh, business is not doing too badly. Um, retail is in recession. Um, let there be no doubt about that. But people are just being conservative at the moment. I think what we're going to see is the property market really just be stable. Uh, Melbourne is outperforming because it's got plenty of jobs and really is a city-state. So, you know, you've got... And it's it's cheaper than Sydney. So so with the job opportunities, that's growing quite well. Brisbane is a place that'll outperform. But Sydney, uh, with the new transport infrastructure and that type of thing, we will flatline for a little while, but then... It's prime for good growth over the next sort of three to four years. Okay, so I'm gathering you're going to stick it out in the real estate game for a bit longer, Malcolm. Um, I'm an old bloke, so it's all I know. <laughs> all right. Okay, <laughs> thanks for talking to us here and on the money. That's a pleasure. Yeah, Malcolm Gunning there from ME Gunning Real Estate speaking with me there. You're listening to On The Money around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers. The technology disruption has hit Australia, according to the leader of Australian Computer Society, at a talk earlier today. With technology changing the business industry, more owners will need to upskill their existing workforce to keep up with tech disruptions like automation. Kevin Suarez spoke to Johan Ramasandara, leader of the ACS, and asked him how our digital economy currently needs to change. Well, Australia's digital economy currently uh, requires... 100,000 more technology workers between now and 2024. So at the moment, it's about 700,000 ICT workers in the workspace, and we need to uh, make sure that we have 100,000 to meet the demands. And potentially, if we need to actually lead the the world stage, we need probably 200,000, if not more. So there's a huge demand for tech workers. So how can the uh, businesses need uh, 100 to 200,000 um, new technology workers within the next five years? Well, we think it's really important that we upskill and reskill our current workforce because, as you know, technology-driven disruption is disrupting the work and, and the types of work, the, the, the skills required is, is changing. So by upskilling, we are minimising impact on the existing workers, but also making sure that they're ready for the workforce uh, needs. That's number one. And also attracting top talent from across the world. Uh, we don't have the, the talent enough talent uh, around the country. We need to attract them from around the world. Um, so those are the shorter-term uh, 
initiatives that we can take. In terms of longer term, we need to make sure that our education system continues to evolve and adapt to the needs and is, is able to meet the demands of not just the tech sector, but all the industries um, in the future. So when you're talking about this new technology uh, that will be affecting businesses and requiring people to be upskilled to meet them, uh, what, do, what exactly do these uh, upskilling and these new technology disruptions, what do they look like? What do businesses need to be on the lookout for when they are training their new staff members or existing uh, employees? Well, uh, the, the most important thing is it's important that Australian citizens understand how technology works and not just become consumers of technology. So understanding how technology works and being tech savvy means they'll be able to derive value from technologies. And disruption disruption comes in many forms and technology-driven uh, disruption mostly is through automation. So if people are doing, let's say, repetitive tasks that requires uh, a lot of consistency, then they're the first ones to be automated. And if they're automated, what are the people going to be doing? And they're usually lower-level jobs. So by upskilling them to take on... So let me use in a, a tech uh, industry example, uh, testing. So it used to be manual testing of software systems, and pe- we had so many people running different tests to see if a certain program is working fine. But now there's all these automated testing, and automated testing can be more efficient, uh, doesn't require that much resources, and could be deployed uh, very quickly. So those testers but have quite a lot of skills other than testing skills that they can be deployed to take up other uh, technology-related uh, jobs. And do you feel that Australia has not really been too receptive to new technologies? I think Australia's been uh, reasonably receptive to, to new technologies, uh, but where we have been lagging a little bit, where we can improve, is the investment into these new technologies. So, for example, uh, Australia, uh, in, in terms of government, we've invested, uh, well, we are, we've committed to invest $29.9 million over four years for artificial intelligence, as an example, uh, compared to France and South Korea investing $2 billion plus each. And quite a lot of the other uh, similar developed economies are investing in the tune of billions. So we need to, uh, there is the desire, but we need to really, if we are to derive value from uh, these emerging technologies, there needs to be reasonable investment there. Do you feel that if we do embrace new technologies, we could see something along the lines of like Silicon Valley over in uh, the US and California here in Australia? Well, I used to work in the Silicon Valley uh, for a short period of time. Uh, I don't think we need to necessarily create a Silicon Valley as such uh, because it's rather unique, but there are certainly a lot of lessons that we can learn from uh, Silicon Valley and those sort of uh, ecosystems for Australia. And one of the other findings that's related to uh, Australia's uh, ACS Digital Pulse is uh, Startups, we believe startups can really help uh, supercharge our economy. And so the investment into startups uh, could be improved, not just from uh, assistance from uh, government policies and etc., but also individuals and corporates' investment into startups. So could we actually provide better tax incentives for individuals and corporates investing in startups? 
Do you feel that there is anything that should be done on a federal level from the government to try and encourage more, I guess, uh, new businesses and new technologies within Australia? Uh, absolutely. So the, the governments um, should definitely uh, help. Uh, if you look at the three levels of government that we have in Australia, they employ uh, 16% of the, the workforce. So that's a significant percentage of the workforce. Uh, therefore, they have quite a lot of the, the buying power. And that's 2 million workers that we can reskill, upskill, um, so that either they stay within that government sector or they go to other sectors or start their own businesses. Uh, so that's one. The, the other one is the, the tax landscape. Uh, certainly, the, the tax landscape uh, needs to be simplified a little bit. And like I suggested earlier, the incentives for investment, uh, inbound investment, uh, if we could make it a lot more attractive. So if you use the UK, uh, for example, their, uh, their arrangements are such that you would get over a three, uh, if you invest $200,000 over a three-year period, you'd get 30.38.6% 30 return. If we invest the same amount in Australia in an early stage startup, you would get about 18% in return. So that's more than double what you get in UK. So could we actually learn some of the lessons from UK and have a system that's similar to that, if not better, so that uh, our investment uh, goes to the startups here rather than going to uh, startups and investments overseas? Johan Ramasandara, leader of the Australian Computer Society, ending that report by Kevin Suarez. You're listening to On The Money Around Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Roderick Chambers. And that's all we have time for on On The Money this week. Tune in again next week to find out everything you need to know about finance, business and the economy. On The Money is produced in the studios of Radio 2 SER for the Community Radio Network. You can find all of our shows and stories at 2SER.com slash on the money. Subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes. New episodes coming out every week. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram as well. I'm Roderick Chambers. We're going to be back again next week to give you the inside running on all things financial. Thanks for your company.